Good. We're unmuted. All right. Thanks. Can you hear me? If I can move this. I would like to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me this morning to uh, the letter to the Hebrews. We'll be coming out of chapter 1, the first two verses specifically. But as we begin, I'd like to just read the whole first paragraph. Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Would you hear the word of the Lord? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sin, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. My message to you this morning is perhaps the most basic Christian message that someone could preach, and that is that God has spoken to people, to us, His people specifically, through His Son. That is, the Gospel. God has spoken to us by His Son. God speaks to His people through His Son, our Lord Jesus. Now, I imagine, um, as Christian people, that you want to hear from God. Not just this morning, but in your everyday life. You open your Word, hopefully. Not your Word, the Word of God, hopefully. And you seek His face. You seek what He has to say. You live in community together and share His truth with one another. In that context, my message is, following this verse, God has spoken to us by His Son. My invitation is that we listen to the speech of God through looking to His Son. Would you pray with me before we get into this text? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for calling us to be your people. We thank you for the life we have in your Son. We thank you for this time, this morning to gather together as your people and hear from you together. Sanctify us in your truth, Lord. Your word is your truth. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight. It's in Christ's name. 
And I pray these things. Amen. It doesn't take long as we approach Scripture for us to run into the concept of God's Word. Right? In Genesis, in the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the creation account, in the beginning of all things, we read of the creative power of God's Word. We read and we learn that God spoke everything that is into into existence simply with His Word. As we continue to read through Scripture, the creative power of God's Word continues to be a major theme. Specifically, we see that God's Word creates His people. It is God who calls Abram, for instance. A man who previously, it appears, was not a fearer of Yahweh. But God calls out to him by name, and speaks His promises to him to establish His people through him. God initiates His people. God calls out to Moses from the burning bush, telling him what He wants him to do. Later, in the desert wanderings, God dictates His law, the law of His covenant to Moses on the Mount Sinai. That covenant that formed the very people of God, Israel. And then all throughout the Old Testament, God continues to speak to His people through the prophets, both to hem them in and discipline as his, them as His people, and also to issue promises of the new covenant that He will make with them. God's Word creates God's people. Not millennia of social construction, not Agreements of collective imagination, not tradition, not the will or desires of man, the mind of man in any way, but God's Word. God's Word creates us as His people. When we come to this letter of Hebrews, we come to a letter wherein the writer is addressing the people of God obviously, intending, his intention is to remind them of exactly what word they have received. What word they have received that made them God's people. This letter was addressed most immediately, it would appear to a group of former Jews who had come to faith in Christ. They were Jewish Christians. We can presume, I think, that they had spent a good portion of their lives under the Old Covenant system of worship. They went to the temple. They offered sacrifices. They sought out the teaching and the advocacy of the priests of Aaron, the Levitical priests. They were very Hebrew people. Much the same way, by the way, as the apostles of our Lord who wrote the rest of the New Testament, his disciples and Jesus himself. Then, when these people heard the gospel of Jesus and of the new covenant in his blood, and they heard those Old Testament texts 
that um, our music leader just alluded to explained and how Christ was the king that was promised. They put their faith in him. They became Christians. Apparently, however, they were having a difficult time staying the course. Both from outside pressures and persecutions from others to get them to return to this old system and from their own inward draw towards what was familiar, what was comfortable, what their family, their friends were doing. What history seemed to point them towards. They were experiencing the temptation to return to the faith of the old covenant. Thus the writer sets out to write this letter to steer them straight. To steer them back to Christ. But as he does, he begins in verse 1 by making an acknowledgement, a concession of sorts to these people. In the first part of verse 1, it says, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God did speak to our fathers by the prophets. You are not wrong, he says, for believing that what is spoken in the prophets is speech from the one true God. You are not wrong for believing that the old covenant system was from the one true God. It was His covenant to His people. God did speak to our fathers through the prophets. And that is an amazing thing. We, this morning, should stop and hear the amazing thing that the first part, the first verse of Hebrews is. But, he continues... In these last days, God has spoken His final word. To borrow the phrase of one commentator. God has spoken His final, fullest word to us through His Son. He continues, God has spoken to us now by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. Before there were even any prophets for God to speak through, His Son was there. And He is not just an ordinary prophet. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. This is through whom God has now spoken to His people. Should we not listen to that? He asks. Yes, we should. As I prepared for this sermon, um, I pondered the question, what what does God say through His Son? What exactly is the speech that is spoken here, spoken of here? I can easily think of what God said through the prophets in very specific terms. I can 
read, in quote, passages of the prophets where they said, Thus saith the Lord. But what does God say through his Son? By his Son. As I pondered this, I didn't take me long to realize that my mind was leading me to preach a sermon that basically summarized the entire Bible. I would have to preach a sermon on everything that is contained in Christianity if I really wanted to capture the full truth of this statement. And that notion, that realization, is what I hope to impart to you this morning, mainly, that when God's word says he has spoken to us through his son, he means there's not another word that God speaks to his people. There are psalms, there are proverbs, there are everything, truth, wisdom, instruction, that don't make explicit mention of the Son of God. For brothers and sisters, every single one of them is spoken through Christ to God. He is the final and fullest self-revelation from God. Obviously, I can't preach a sermon on everything. So I simply want, in the remaining time, to highlight what I believe are probably the three main recurring themes about Christ found in the book of Hebrews. This will be sort of an overview of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. Three aspects, if you will, of God's speech to us through his Son. It's interesting that there are no words of Jesus recorded in the book of Hebrews. The writer begins by proclaiming that God has spoken to us by his son, and then he doesn't record anything that the son said. Obviously, we can go to the Gospels in certain parts of Acts and read words that Jesus said. We can read how God has spoken to us through his son, through what he said. We can hear what God said literally through Jesus. But what does the writer mean here? Where there are no words. What is this speech from God? What is God saying? And how do we listen to it? Well, the answer I believe is that time and again the writer exhorts these people and exhorts us to look to Jesus. To Consider Him. To hold fast to Him. To look to Him. To look to Him over and over and over again. God speaks to us, His people, in this sense through the very person of His Son. Therefore, we listen to God by looking to Christ. And in the book of Hebrews, as is in the outline in your bulletin, I believe we see that we are called to look to Christ in three specific ways. Number one, 
as the captain of our salvation. That's also uh, translated as the founder of our salvation in some, um, some translations, English translations. Number one, as the captain of our salvation. Number two, as the eternally sufficient sacrifice. And number three, as the eternally faithful high priest. First, Jesus in Hebrews is called the captain of our salvation. In another place, the founder and perfecter of our faith. That's chapter 2 and chapter 12, respectively. Within these names, the writer is highlighting what Jesus accomplishes for the people of God as a man. As the man, Jesus Christ. All through the first few chapters, and then towards the end of the letter again, he does this. He highlights the humanity of Christ and what he accomplishes for us as humans. Before we consider the text, I just want to explain why he does this. As we have said, these people, these people are struggling to maintain their faith. They are struggling to see what hope there is for them in this new covenant. Their life is hard and in general, as all life in this fallen world is hard. As Elder A.C. was just lamenting. They suffer this creation order of God not being as it should be. Not only that, but they are suffering some amount of persecution specifically because they claim the name of Christ. So, what's their hope? As, as people experiencing the life of people on this earth, where is their hope? The writer of Hebrews says, your hope is in Jesus, your captain. He says, he's lived the life you're living as a man. He suffered as a man. But he was faithful as a man to God. He was obedient to God as a man. He overcame as a man. He overcame the death and the grave as a man. And he stands in heaven now as a man, as your hope of the new creation glory that God has in store for you. For you, real living human people made in his image. The writer begins this theme in chapter 2, verse 5, in what follows. And I'd like to read quite a bit of scripture this morning, so... Two verse five, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? 
or the Son of Man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Stop. Here the writer quotes Psalm 8, which is a psalm marveling at the status that God gave to man in his creation order as his deputy rulers, as you will. He's marveling at the creation blessing of Genesis 1, I believe it's verse 28, uh, where God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over dot, 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 everything (laughs) in, in the creation. This is the creation blessing. And the writer of Psalm 8 marvels at it. And then the writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 8 and says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. That is, things aren't as they should be. The writer of Hebrews takes Psalm 8, which is positive, praise towards God, and says, that's true, but that's not reality now. This creation blessing was thwarted. Yes, by God's grace, we exercise some amount of dominion over creation, but not as we should. We don't see that right now. But, he says, we do see him. But, We do see Him. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to Him, mankind of Psalm 8, but we do see Him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God He might taste death for everyone. So so where do we find this hope, this promise of Psalm 8? We look to Him. We see him, namely Jesus. The writer continues saying, For it was fitting that he, this is uh, verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies Christ, and those who are sanctified, all of us, all are of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, praise God, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. 
this theme continues throughout the letter, such as in chapter 5, verses 7 through 9, where the writer says that in the days of Jesus' flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. This theme, this truth in Hebrews is a truth that closely parallels the theme of Paul in Romans 5. Where he contrasts the first man, Adam, of the old creation, the federal head, if you will, of the old creation, with the first man, Jesus, of the new creation. This is Romans 5. Uh, I didn't write the verse down, and I don't remember, so <laughs> I apologize. I think it's verse 15. If many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made sinners. Righteous. I believe what God is saying to his people through Christ in this way is put your hope in your captain. Live your life by looking to him, the new man, the one who stands as the fulfillment of the promises given to you, men. Orthodox Christianity has always maintained, as we do, I hope, that Jesus is very God and very man. He is not just a man. He is very God, the Son. But oftentimes I get the impression that when saying that Jesus was not just a man, Christians functionally wind up implying that Jesus wasn't actually a man. That he accomplished everything as God and not as man. Saying that Jesus is not just a man cannot mean that he is not a man. He is very God and very man. The word of God is not ashamed to proclaim what he accomplished for his people by partaking of flesh and blood with us. Indeed, as we just read in chapter 2 of Hebrews, that is the very reason why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. 
We must look to him as our captain, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Secondly, in Hebrews, God speaks to his people through Christ by holding him out to them as the eternally sufficient sacrifice. One of this one of the temptations for this church, as we have said, was to return to the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Uh, there were many sacrifices instituted by God in that covenant, but the big one was on the Day of Atonement, which happened once a year. It's where um, the high priest would go into the most holy place, taking sacrifice for the sins of the people and of himself. Thus, through this sacrifice, the guilt for the sins of the people would be removed from them for one year until the next day of atonement, which allowed them to be purified such that they could remain in covenant with God for that one year. The writer responds to this and says, Why do you want to go back to that? Man, that's exhausting. Those sacrifices don't remove your sins, not really remove in any meaningful way. That was only a type or a shadow of the real removal of sins that was to come. You want to be free? The writer asks him. Really free? So that you can love and serve God with a clean conscience? Look. To the blood of Christ. Chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 reads that when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He continues in verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to have then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He's done that. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do 
Do you want to experience the freedom of having the guilt for your sin gone? Fully, completely, eternally removed from you. Look to the blood of Christ. Listen to what it has to say. Yes, I said, listen. In chapter 12, Hebrews, again, verse 24, we read that when we come to Christ, we come to the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's a really unusual phrase. Speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does, what does that phrase mean? Well, you know the history of Cain and Abel found in Genesis 4. Uh, the first two sons born to the first couple, Adam and Eve. Abel and Cain both offered sacrifices to God. Uh, Abel's was acceptable and Cain's was not to God. So Cain got jealous and started pouting because he was not accepted by God. And God reproved him and said, if you do well, won't you be approved? Won't it go well for you? Well, Cain didn't listen. And his jealousy grew until he rose up one day and killed his brother. This really happened. Feel, feel the weight of that. When God came to question Cain, he said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's, brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. How does blood say something? How does it speak? What did the blood of Abel say? Grief. Pain. Guilt. Murder, jealousy, anger, hatred, brokenness, multiplying sin, innocence gone, rejection of the Lord. All of the quintessential things that sin says about its brokenness, its evil, its horror. What does the blood of Christ say? 
Thanks be to God. Righteousness. Guilt gone eternally. Love. Hope restored. Order restored. Wholeness rather than brokenness. Promises secured. The end of sin. See, the writer says, when you come to the blood of Christ, listen, don't be wearied by listening to the blood of Abel. Don't get bogged down there. Yes, grieve it. Mourn it. Acknowledge it. Repent it. But don't be hopeless. We have come to the blood of Christ which speaks a better word than that blood. Thirdly, and quickly, God speaks to His people by holding Christ out to them as the eternally faithful high priest. The role of priests in general, and of high priest especially, was twofold. To offer sacrifices and to stand in solidarity with the people. Now, Solidarity, I don't mean the empty sense of the term found so often in 2022, uh, personal platform building, but in the sense of actually taking up the cause of others before God, standing on behalf of the people before God as one who knew them, who sympathized with their situation and sought God's restoration for them. They offered advocacy. They were also supposed to be there to offer guidance and help against temptation with gentleness. Again, the writer reasons with these Christians against returning to that old old covenant system of the Aaronic priesthood because they weren't perfect priests. They sinned. They had to offer sacrifices for their own sin. Not only that, but they didn't last. They died. They went through a lot of them. They didn't offer perpetual, ever-present advocacy. But Christ is the high priest, he says, who has no sin. Yes, he was tempted. Yes, he suffered. Yes, he knows what this life is all about in the most real way. But he had no sin. Not only that, but he lives forever. He lives. He's alive right now. He is always there, even when we're not looking for Him, offering advocacy. But when we are looking for Him, He is there to help. He is the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Going back to chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, read, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect, so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, because of that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Continuing in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he continues the theme, saying, Since we have a 
great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Speaking of the constancy of Christ's priesthood, the ever-presentness of Christ's priesthood, the writer says in chapter 7, verses 23 through 25, about how the former priests were many in number because they were prevented from death, prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for him. There is much to say in Hebrews about the high priesthood of Jesus, but I simply wish to say this. Listen to the mercy of God found in our high priest. Look to him and find his compassion, his ever-present help. Closing, in Hebrews, we're called to listen to God by looking to Jesus as the founder of our salvation, our captain, as the eternally sufficient sacrifice. I believe we sang a song about that before the sermon. And as our eternally faithful high priest. It's no stretch for me to imagine that some of you are struggling in your faith. Not sure exactly what to believe or what to think. How you fit into this world. Look to Jesus and hear the truth of God. Perhaps you're weighed down by the burden of sin. Maybe your sin, maybe the sin of others, the sin of this world. Your sin, a particular sin, or just the guilt you feel over your own brokenness. Look to the blood of Christ and hear the word that it speaks. You may not be particularly struggling. Maybe this is a good season of life. I give you the same encouragement. Hold fast to Jesus. Continue to open your ears to what God has to say. And practically speaking, open the Word of God. The Jesus we look to is not the Jesus of our imagination or of our culture, but rather the one we find revealed to us in the Word of God. Yes, we listen to God by listening to His literal written words of instruction teaching and wisdom, but we also must at the same time learn when we wake up in the morning, when we lie down, when we rise up, when we eat, 
listen to God by looking to his full and final word given to us by his son as he is found in scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you've spoken to us in your son. God, we need him. Oh, we need him. We need you. We need your spirit to open our hearts and give us this life in Christ. Sink our roots in it. Pray that you help us do that as we go out from here. Thank you for this church and bless their time of fellowship now as we end. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.